Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. It's 346 feet, 9 inches long. I know. If you're watching online, we are having interference. So that means that I turn this way and the antenna points that way and we won't have it. Okay. It's 346 feet, 9 inches long. What is it? It's longer than a football field. It varies in height from top to bottom, from one end to the other. What is it? It's made of black marble, polished black marble. It's in Washington. One end points toward the Lincoln Memorial and the other toward the Washington Monument. What is it? What? No? Okay, here it is. It was dedicated in 1982 and over three and a half million people visited every year. Vietnam Memorial. Yeah. It has, uh, what I was going to say, and it would give it away, is it has over 58,300 names on it. Why do people, why do people go and visit it? To see their loved ones again. It's remarkable to <clears throat> go there and to see people go up to the monument with a piece of paper, maybe, and do a, what did we used to call it? rubbing, like a brass rubbing in England on the graves, you know, where they have the brasses. <clears throat> Some people go and trace the name with their fingers. They almost always cry. They may be relatives. They may be friends. They may be comrades that did not fall in battle next to them. You know, it started with under 58,000 names, 57,900, but over the years, we have added names to it each year. Why? Because we discover uh, new remains of those that are repatriated. Some people every year die from wounds directly related to battle, and that's the primary cause of their death and their families petitioned for their name to be put on the wall. There is a duplicate wall, I have told you about this before, uh, of the Vietnam Memorial in Mineral Wells. And we have a, cer we have a ceremony every year. Uh, Jay, would you get me a microphone, please? We have a, a ceremony every year where we add the names to that wall to the names that have been added in the previous spring. Um, <clears throat> And it's a very moving ceremony. Uh, we add them by service. Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. And that's probably it because we didn't have a Space Force then. And uh, as far as I know, as far as I know, there were no merchant Marines that died in Vietnam. So one reason they go is to 
see the names of their loved ones. Why was it put up? Why was it erected? Well, we call it the Vietnam War what? Memorial. To remember, to memorialize. A visible memory, not just of things past and not just people past, but also, as we were talking about this morning, a period in American history, it reminds us, where, and there's a divided opinion about this, uh, about the purpose of Vietnam and all, but it reminds us not to forget, not to forget those who died. Uh, I'm of the personal conviction that Vietnam, the Vietnam conflict played a key and vital role eventually in dismantling the Soviet Union. But if you want to know why I think that, that's another story for another time. So we come tonight to another memorial. And you know where it is. It's going to be in, uh, in Canaan. It's near a place that Jesus met the uh, woman at the well. Do you remember the name of the village where, near, nearby where he met her? It's a village of Sikar, but closer by today is the modern remnant, or not the modern remnant, it's the modern city of Nablus. Anybody know what the original town was that is now Nablus? Shechem. Shechem between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in that broad, well-watered valley, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But in order to understand a little bit better what's going on here tonight, let's talk about the background. Uh, last time, Alan talked to us a little bit about the uh, people of Israel gathered on a different mountain, or at the base of a different mountain, Exodus 19. Mountains play a key role in Israelite history, don't they? Yeah. Uh, which mountain was it? Mount Sinai, Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula. And of course, God gave the law and Moses destroyed it by throwing it down. And God re-gave the law again. Well, what was all of that about? It's about covenant, isn't it? Sometimes it's a little confusing when we talk about the covenant, so let's do a very quick review. Where does the covenant begin? Technically, the covenant begins in Exodus 15. But it goes back to the promise, as, we, as Alan talked about last week, back to Exodus 12. The covenant is based on promises that, that God gave to Abram, and, and, uh, and I said Exodus, I meant Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. In Genesis 12, what does God promise Abram that he's going to do? He's going to make Abram into a what? Great nation. He's going to bless him. That's one promise. Through him, all nations will be blessed. And also, too, a little bit later, as he goes into Canaan, he promises that he is going to give this land. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I'm going to give this land to you. He says, I'm going to give this land to whom? To your descendants. The next step, then, is Genesis 15. And that promise, then, is converted to a covenant. And there, God promises this. In order to fulfill the, that you're going to be a great nation, you're going to have a what? You're going to have a child. That child is not named yet. <laughs> Sarah laughs about it, and she 
later says that she didn't, but that's the basis for his name. What's the name? Isaac. And there in Genesis 15, also too, uh, the land is again promised to Abraham, and there's a prophecy that's made. What's the prophecy that's made in Genesis 15? What's going to happen? Your descendants are going to be taken captive. How many years? There it says about 400 years. It doesn't say about it. It says 400 years. We know later it's exactly 430 years. And in the fourth generation, I'm going to deliver them. That's important because that's a reminder for God that he has got to do something later because he's obligated himself to do. And then Genesis 17, the covenant then is complete, okay? In Genesis 15, Abraham believes and God counts it for what? Righteousness. And then in Genesis 17, the covenant is complete when God reiterates those things and he adds one thing to it. He not only says that he is going to be the father of a great nation, but he's going to multiply him and he's going to be the father of many nations. He is now not just Abram, but Abraham. And in addition to that, he promises to be their God. That's important. That was not in the previous covenants. So now, a great nation with many people that he's going to use to bless, they're going to have a land, he's going to be their God, and then that covenant is sealed by an act. What's the act? Circumcision. And Abraham does that. And remember, it's interesting, he doesn't just circumcise himself, but also Isaac and all the servants of the house. So it's not just his bloodline, it's those that serve. And then we come to Exodus. In Exodus, the second chapter, he meets Moses and he says, I have heard the distress of my people and it has reminded me of my what? My covenant. And therefore, I'm going to deliver my people. And then in Exodus, the sixth chapter, when uh, Moses is frustrated about the elders after the Pharaoh has caused them to work extra hard because they don't have straw, and the elders don't want to follow Moses. God reminds Moses, I am indeed going to do this. I'm going to fulfill my covenant. And then to round things out, as we talked about last week, in Exodus, the 19th chapter, then the people are gathered there, and he is going to give them the book of the covenant. The Ten Commandments, and not just the Ten Commandments, but from chapters 20 through 31, the book of the covenant. Ah, it involves not just the Ten Commandments, but all the, quote, sundry laws that go along with it. But before that, he calls them then to that mountain, and he says, if you will obey, and it's conditional, if you will obey my voice, of, and if you will follow my covenant, then, and he doesn't say, I will be your God, because he's already promised that. If you will do that, and it's not so much a condition that you must do this and this won't happen. It's a promise that if you do this, what will result? You then will be my special possession, and you will be a what kind of nation? You'll be a kingdom of priests, and you will be what kind of nation? Well, what's the product of keeping God's law? A holy nation. So you see what has happened then when we come to Exodus. The covenant then is to produce a holy people that obey the covenant of God. And what do they do? They turn around and make a golden calf. <laughs> and God has to then renew the covenant with them in Exodus, the 34th chapter. And that's where we leave the covenant history. Then we come to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, historical review, what happens before we come then to this point in Deuteronomy 27, 
where they are on the plains of Moab. In Deuteronomy 1 through 3, there's a historical recounting of what has happened. And not all the events are there, but in summary fashion, the Moses then tells them what has happened over the last almost 40 years. It's the 40th year. It is the first day of the 11th month. In other words, the 40th year is almost complete. And Moses has already, he recounts, there was a time when God told me to choose elders, 70 elders, to assist me in the spiritual ministry here. And these are more than likely different than those judges that had been advised by his father-in-law to pick. And then we left Sinai, and we went to the hill country of the Amorites. And then God said, you see that land over there? It's time to go take it. And they sent spies into the land. And what happened? The spies came back, and 10 of them didn't want to go. Two wanted to go. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. But the people rebel. They don't want to go. And then God says what? Therefore, I forbid any of this generation except for them to go into the promised land. You will die in this wilderness. But whatever you do, don't try to take it now. Do they listen? No. And they send off a party, war party, then to go fight the Canaanites. And what happens to them? They're defeated. They're, they're rebel. They're pushed back. And so from that point on, for 38 years, then they wander, eventually from Kadesh Barnea, then to the brook Zered, and they are prepared to go into the promised land. As they do, God forbids them to do some things. He says, don't go into the territories of your relatives. I mean, you can pass through them, but don't war against them. So when you go through the land of Edom, and those are the descendants of whom? Esau. He said, you're not to fight them, you're to pay for your bread and your keep and all as you go through the, the land. You don't fight them. And when you go through the land of the descendants of Lot, through his two daughters, we talked about that this morning. The what? On the south? Actually, the southern part of the eastern side of the Dead Sea. The nation of Moab. And then just to the east and north of that, when you go through the land of Ammon, you're not to fight them. But... The strip that's between them that runs from the northern part of Moab, skirts the western part of the Ammonites, and runs all the way from the Dead Sea virtually to Mount Hermon. God then allows them, not only allows them, but commands them to take that territory. And who inhabited that territory? The Amorites. And there is the great defeat of the far superior and outnumbering armies of King Sion and Og. They take that territory. And then they settle two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. Uh, whom did they settle there? Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, and also Reuben. So now they're ready to go into the promised land. And they're on the plains of Moab. What mountain range is behind them? The lofty heights. What are the lofty heights? There's a hymn that sings about Pisgah's lofty heights. Well, that's the range that runs through there. And one of the key promontory points is the mountain upon which Moses goes because he has been forbidden to go into the promised land because he struck the rock and disobeyed God at Meribah instead of just speaking to it. And so he then is to go up to Nebo and view the promised land. So now let's talk about the context of tonight's passage. That leaves us at, at, at um, uh, Deuteronomy 3, at the end of Deuteronomy 3, and they're at a place called Beth Peor. I love that name. Beth means what? House. 
Ben means what, son? But Beth means house. Peor, the house of the opening, the house of the gap, the house of the door. A door is about to open for them that they are to go through, that God is going to command them to do. And so, uh, in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, through the 11th chapter, uh, Moses recounts the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 5. We have a second recounting of the law there. He encourages them to keep the law. He recounts what has happened in the past related to the law and their disobedience, and he tells them that they will be rewarded if they obey the law. They will be not be rewarded if they don't obey the law. And then he tells them in Deuteronomy, the 11th chapter, He's about to give a different version of the Book of the Covenant. And this version of the Book of the Covenant runs from chapter 12 down to about the middle of chapter 26. So we got that Book of the Covenant in mind in Deuteronomy. But just before he gives that, he tells Israel, when you go into the Promised Land, you will bless through Mount Gerizim, and you will pronounce cursings, through Mount Ebal, but he he doesn't go any further than that. He doesn't explain how they're to do it. And now he gives this um, account of the Book of the Covenant, and if you turn your scripture to chapter number 26 of Deuteronomy, he makes, then Moses, at the very end of this recounting of everything, makes a very clear, explicit statement as to why they are standing before him. They're all on the plains of Moab, They know that he's not going to go with them. They know that Joshua is going to lead them and the new generation of elders, and Caleb is going to be among them. And in Deuteronomy 26, verse number 16, he gives a couple of reasons why they are there. Number one, to remind them. This has been a verbal memorial, a verbal reminder that they are God's special people. They're God's holy people. And secondly, they are then to set an example for the nations around them as his obedient people. So what he's covered in the book of the covenant, that is chapters 12 through 26, they are to keep all that is said in there, and also Deuteronomy 5, which has the Ten Commandments. In verse 16 it says, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared... Today you have declared to the Lord your God and that you would walk in his ways and you will keep his statutes, his commandments, and his ordinances, and you will listen to his voice. The Lord this day, he has today declared you to be his people, a treasured possession as he had promised before, and that you should keep his commandments, all of them, and that he will set before you He will set you high above all the nations which he has made. Why? For praise, fame, and honor. Why? And that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So that's the context for what is about to happen then in chapter 27. And why is 27 so important in the scarlet thread of redemption in our history of Israel as we move toward the new covenant? Well, it's about covenant and it's about obedience And this defines pretty much the people of Israel from this point on as the people of God. In this chapter, we're going to be covering really about the first 13 verses and talking about the just 
discussing in summary the rest of chapter 27 and 28. In the first part of this passage, verses 1 through 8, we see that he commands them to do two covenant acts of memorial and obedience. And then in verses 9 and 10, Moses gets their attention and he says, okay, now, you know what you're going to do. Stop, listen, and you're to obey. And then he tells them how they're going to ratify the law, where they're going to stand and the purpose of it. And then I want to talk a little bit about the rest of the story. So the two covenant acts of obedience in chapter 27. Read with me in verses 1 through 8. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I have commanded you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God, of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. So what's happening here? There's a transition of leadership, obviously, that is occurring. Moses, and not just Moses now. Most of the time it's been Moses that has spoken to the people, but now he is accompanied by whom? What does it say? Verse 1. He's accompanied by the elders. Forty years ago, as we said, and he's recounted this at the beginning of Deuteronomy, God had commanded him to choose 70 elders. Now, I know that his father-in-law in Exodus 18, Jethro, had given him advice to choose elders. Well, we could call them elders. But the purpose of those was to judge the people. And there's some dispute about this. But apparently, this group is not that group. And we'll because when you look at the evidence of, uh, in, John, in Joshua 8, when they actually do what they're commanded to do, when they actually then go past Jericho and bat, past the battle of Ai, and then they do this at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in Joshua 8, distinctly then standing there with then Joshua and the leaders are the elders and the judges. So apparently these are two different groups of people. Now, whether they overlapped or not, I don't know. But it's this new generation of elders, not those that then stood at Mount Sinai, not those that attended with Moses and went part the way up the mountain and God said, stay there, you've gone far enough. It's not those that witnessed the Shekinah glory of God falling upon Mount Sinai. This is a new generation. So this is a symbol then of what God had said was going to happen, that that generation that was disobedient, is not going to go into Canaan. These are the new elders. And though it's a new generation, we know that there are three people there that are still alive. They're not mentioned in the text. Well, one of them is mentioned in the text. By the way, the use of Moses' name in Deuteronomy is pretty rare, okay? But here it is. It's one of those instances. So we know Moses is there. He's speaking. And he's speaking then on behalf of the elders. Who are the others? other two that we know are there? Joshua and Caleb, almost certainly. 
The first covenant act then is to erect a monument to the law, a memorial so that the people would be able to remember it. And it's to commemorate what? God's faithfulness, that he has kept his covenant and the covenant from the very beginning of the promise to, Mo, to uh, Abraham to give this land to his descendants. Look at verse 2. When you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you. And the site where they're to put these stones is Mount Ebal. As I said, it's near Shechem. The modern city is Nabalus. What's significant about that is Shechem is where then Joshua eventually fulfills the commitment that Joseph had called them to complete. What does Joshua do at Shechem? He buries Joseph's bones. Shechem is in a valley that is on the other side as you go from the Jordan headed west. There's a great north-south road that runs along the ridge line, and Shechem is on the west side of that in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, and about 30 miles west of the crossing point in the Jordan from the plains of Moab. The significance of Shechem here is this, I think. It's where when Abram goes into the promised land, as God has commanded him to do, it's the first place that he stops. Now, up to this point, all God has told Abram in Genesis 12 is, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I'll make you a great nation, and through you all nations will be blessed. But it's not until he gets to Shechem and then Abram then sets up an altar that God then says, I will give this land to your descendants. And now they're going to go to that very site. It's a reminder of also the bounty of God's covenant blessing. Uh, in verse number three, the land that the Lord their God is giving them, is a land defined as what? Flowing with milk and honey. On the first occasion when God then begins to reveal his will to Moses, I've heard the distress of my people. This promise has not been made before. The promise is I'll give a land to your people, okay, and your descendants. But this promise hasn't been made before, or it hasn't been described this way. When he talks to, to, to Moses and uh, Exodus, the second chapter. He then defines it. He's going to deliver them out of the bondage of slavery, out of Egypt and their hardship and their distress, and he's taking them to where? A land flowing with milk and honey. And that promise is repeated nine times before we come to this point. So you see, God's fulfilling his promise not only to Abram, Abraham and the patriarchs Isaac and Jacob, and to Joseph and the rest, but also to Moses explicitly. The method then is they're supposed to put up this memorial, and we see in verses 2 and 8. It's interesting, the stones that are talked about <laughs> in verse number 8, I think, are not the stones of the altar. You see, what he talks about is the stones that are set up, then he talks about the altar, and then he says, and you write on them very distinctly. Some people think that then they write some of this on the altar. I do not think that's the case. He goes back then in a kind of poetic loop and comes back to the stones for the memorial. There to be what kind of stones? Large stones with what on them? Lime or gypsum. They're to be whitewashed and to write on them. Now, they could have chiseled the words, I guess. That would have taken a long time. Also, they would have had to polish the stones in order to do it. He doesn't say that they're not to polish the stones here on the the uh, 
whitewashed rock, that wouldn't do any good. But he does say about the altar that they're not to be polished. They're to whitewash these rocks, and they're to do what? To ride on them. Well, that comes from an Egyptian custom. There, there are even some remnants today that they have found in archaeological digs of some of these, these kind of gypsum-covered rocks with writing on them that is still decipherable. So they probably got this from the Egyptians. It's sort of like covering a wall with stucco, letting it uh, dry and whitewash it. Fills in the, the porous sandstone probably that they were using to do this. And the Egyptians would post notices with a very dark black pigment that was permanent. And I, I, I suspect it was permanent. <laughs> we can still read some of those, those uh, writings from 3,000 years ago. And then he says in verse number 8, write very distinctly. And this seems at first like maybe a contradiction because the word there, write distinctly, means literally engrave upon them. So it could be a combination that on this whitewash, which is fairly soft, then they're to engrave and then fill it in with a black pigment or they're just to write on it. Regardless, I think the suggestion there is the memorial is there to be permanent and to do what to the minds of the people? Engrave on the minds of the people, the words that are on the rock. And what is the content to be? Write all the words of this law. Well, if it's talking about the Deuteronomic Book of the Covenant from chapters, what, 12 through 26, you just flip through your pages. That's pretty long, pretty long list of stuff to write. And, and it could be. They could have had massive stones with real tiny writing on it. You know, probably covered the whole hillside. I think that probably was not what he was talking about. Um, I think that was probably in too much detail. But it might be. It was probably the Ten Commandments. Everything of the Ten Commandments. Some scholars have said that uh, it was the Ten Commandments. And then what follows? What is about to follow? There are 12 curses that are pronounced. There are four blessings and then a general description of the blessings and then a further list of the consequences of disobeying and the curses and what they involve. Whatever it is, it is sufficient to remind the children of Israel, these are the essentials that you are to do what? To obey. For what reason? So that you will demonstrate. It's not so much that you do these things that make you a holy nation. I have made you a holy nation. I have made you a special possession. This isn't legalism. You do these things and then you are therefore holy. I have made you holy. It is to do what? It is to demonstrate to God their obedience as a holy nation and to be a witness to whom? To all of those nations around them that they're God's special possession. And by the way, the law that God has given them is far superior to any of the law codes of the surrounding nations. The second covenant act is to build an altar and to do what at the altar? To sacrifice. The significance of this, Mount Ebal was near Shechem, as we said, and it is at Shechem where Abram first establishes his altar in Canaan and sacrifices in Genesis 12. And then later, in 21 chapters later, we find then that uh, Jacob also builds an altar there right after he has had a reconciling meeting with his brother Esau. He builds an altar there. What are they to do? They're to construct the altar of stones, special kind of stones. Well, no, not special in the sense that they do something special to them, but they're different than the altar stones of the Canaanites. 
You see, the Canaanites dressed their altar stones. They chiseled them with iron. The Canaanites had iron. The Israelites don't have iron. And so there may be a couple of reasons for this. Your altar is to be a natural altar the way I have made the stones. In other words, I have provided you the material in its natural state. You use it. And it is to be an altar that is different than the altar of the Canaanites. He knows they don't have iron. He also doesn't want them to become beholden to the Canaanites and to do commerce with them. There may be many reasons, but the command is you're not to polish and to dress the stones. And there's an archaeological find of an altar on Mount Ebal. They think they've discovered it. It's about 25 by 30 feet in area. It's 750 square feet. The walls are five feet thick, nine feet high, and guess what the characteristic of those stones is? They're not polished. They're not hewn. They haven't been chiseled. They're in their natural state. And then what are they to do? They're to make sacrifices, two kinds of sacrifices, and you know this. The burnt offering, why is it burnt? What's consumed? Virtually everything of the offering was consumed. Why? Because the offering was totally dedicated to God, totally consumed. This is an act of repentance. It's an act of atonement. It is a kind of peace offering, but not with men. It's a kind of peace offering to whom? To God. And then he says, then you're also to offer peace offerings. And they then don't burn the animals completely up. They roast them. They cook them. And this was not to be an act of penance, but an act of celebration, an act of thanksgiving, very much like when we take the Lord's Supper. It's an act of thanksgiving. And we come together in what? Not only thanksgiving to the Lord, but we come together in fellowship. And he tells them, you're to rejoice, as we said this morning. Rejoice and have fellowship. And this is a symbol of not just peace with God, but peace with one another. This is exactly what they had done in Exodus 24. When they had received the covenant the first time, and before they then had their falling away with a golden calf, they all came together, and after Moses had given the first part of the book of the covenant, and they promised to keep it, they celebrated in Exodus 24 with burnt offerings and peace offerings. So, we come then down to... um, Verses 9 and 10. They're given the command to listen and obey. Read with me there. Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, and they said this, Be silent, be quiet. Listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes, which I command you this day. So he says, Be quiet. Be silent and listen. Hmm. What does that remind you of in Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy, we have the recounting of the history, and then we have um, them coming to Beth Peor. And then in chapter 5, we've got the second recounting of the law, and then we come to Deuteronomy 6. Why is Deuteronomy 6 important? The Shema. And how does the Shema begin? Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord is our God, and He is what? He is one. 
And then instructions are given that you are then to do what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all of your soul, with all your might. These words I command you today, and they shall be, these words shall be where in the Shema? Are those words to be written on stone? They're to be written on the heart. So you see, this is kind of an echo of that. Listen to what I'm saying, what we're saying on behalf of God. Take heed, like with the Shema. You already have these words on your heart. Listen, O Israel, the Lord, He is God. He is one. You're to love the Lord. And why, did we, why are they to love the Lord? Because He's the covenant God. Because He's chosen them to be a special people. He has promised to be their God. He is going to walk with them, and they're to walk with Him. What is happening here is not... It is a memorial that's written in stone, but it harkens back to a covenant of the what? Of the heart. Later, Israel forgets that. <laughs> this isn't about stones. It's about what has already been engraved on their hearts. This reminded Israel that they were God's own possession, his people. Verse number 9. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. This does not mean that all of a sudden they're God's people. It's a reminder. They have been God's people. But this day, as we read about in chapter 26, you have today declared the Lord to be your God. We read that just a moment ago. So what they've just done is they have just responded to God's invitation once again to affirm that they're God's people and that they will walk in His ways, that they will keep His statutes, His commands, and ordinances. So they haven't just become God's people. But it is a new generation that is doing what? It's making its commitment to fulfill its covenant responsibility, to affirm to God that they are going to keep their promise to be obedient. It harkens back to Exodus 19. Last week with Alan, as we stood at the base of Mount Sinai, and he gathered them together. In verse number 8, what does God say? He says you're to obey, and if you obey, you will be my special possession, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then the people responded in verse number 8, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what they're doing here. So it is a reminder of what the previous generation has said. They're taking ownership of this themselves, and they also are committed to pass it on to the next generation. It anticipates... That great passage from Joshua at the beginning, have no fear, the Lord your God goes with you. He will never forsake you. And you are to do what? You are to keep the commandments that Moses has given to you and not depart from them to where? The right or to the left. You see, this is a kind of theocracy, isn't it? Absolutely. At the beginning, Moses is gathered in front of the people with whom? With the elders. They're sort of like, you know, Moses is the legislator. He, he's the executive agent, the legislator. And in fact, he also has judges. But these elders, these folks that help in the pastoral ministry and leadership of the people and to administer amongst the people are really kind of on the civil side, if you will. Now who is gathered with him in verses 9 and 10? Or who is spoken about in verses 9 and 10? These are the priests. The priests that speak on behalf of God and Moses, they perform a separate function. 
They perform the spiritual function. The elders perform a legislative function. The priests perform the religious and the spiritual function, the Levitical priests. This is a theocracy. Who is their king? Not Saul, not David. Who's their king? The Lord God, Yahweh, is their king. And his executive agents are Moses and the elders. His religious agents then are the Levitical priests. Not all Levites were priests. A whole bunch of the Levites are going to be standing on the side of the mountain. That's interesting. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But all priests were Levites. All priests that were Levites were descendants of Aaron. And it's these descendants that stand then with Moses. And they're guardians of God's word. Guardians, uh, guardian of the words that Moses has just spoken to them that become the covenant, the book of the covenant. And then later we're going to see the rest of the Levites stand, stand on Mount Gerizim. So we come to that then in verses number 11 through 13. Moses also charged the people on that day saying, when you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon and Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben and Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. You notice I said these for those that stand on Mount Gerizim and these that stand on Mount Ebal. Now for you, this is right and this is left, but for me, this is right and this is left, and there's a significance there. We'll see in just a moment. What are they doing here? When they do go into the promised land, he is telling them that they are going to affirm their identity, number one, and their commitment to obedience by doing what? Well, it's sort of like taking a stand. When we obey God and the people around us seeing obeying God, we are doing what for him? We are taking a stand for him. And that is literally what they're going to do. You know, the nations of the the Canaanites and the, the rest that inhabit the land, they're watching this huge congregation of Israelites come across the Jordan, they take Jericho, and then they have the battle of Ai, and they lose it, and then they win later when they're obedient. And then they come to this site, probably well over a million people. I'm sure that they, just like they had sent spies in the land, I'm sure that the Canaanites had spies that are watching this ceremony. And they're taking a stand for God. They are bringing into this land a new law a law far superior to that of the Canaanites. What's the location and the orientation? Well, the mountains are right above Jacob's well there where Jesus later met the Samaritan woman. They rise six to 800 feet above the valley. Mount Ebal is about 200 and some odd feet taller than Mount Gerizim. Now, if you stand in that valley and you face east, which is the holy direction, okay, Mount Ebal is on the north, So it is which hand? The left hand. And Mount Gerizim is on the south. It is what? The right hand. And we all understand the Middle Eastern custom behind the sinister nature of the left hand and the blessed nature of the right hand. (laughs) When uh, Jacob was uh, blessed by his father Isaac, I'm sure that Isaac blessed him with his what? With his right hand. Mount Ebal is to the north on the left in the unfavorable position, and Mount Gerizim is on the right in the favorable position. The, the location then of the, the tribes on Gerizim, what's the significance? And some have said that there is not a great deal of significance here. I think there is some, 
uh, on Mount Gerizim, on the Mount of Blessing, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Issachar. All of those are the sons, are descendants of the sons of Leah, the first wife of Jacob. On the other hand, on the other mountain are Reuben and Zebulun. What's significant about that? Not a lot, except Reuben had forfeited his primogenitor. He had forfeited his right to be first by committing incest within the family. And Zebulun was the youngest of Lee's children. So these are the middle children of Lee. And then Benjamin and Joseph are whose children? They're Rachel's. So these are all children of the two wives. Hmm. It's interesting. Later, the Levites don't have a possession of, of tribal territory. And so that territory was divided amongst Joseph's people. And who are the two tribes of Joseph? Ephraim and Manasseh. But here, Joseph is named. So all the Ephraimites and all the descendants of Manasseh are together. Their inheritance, those that stand on Mount Gerizim, okay, facing east, right hand, their inheritance was from the center and to the south. The descendants then that are standing on Mount Ebal, their inheritance is to the north. It includes not only Reuben and Zebulun, but also Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali, who are the sons of the two maidservants, that is, of um, Bilhah and uh, uh, Zilpah. The, Levitical, the Levitical priests later were to find that the Levitical priests in Joshua 8 stand in the valley, they have the Ark of the Covenant, and what is in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. And they're stationed there so that they can speak both sides. And there's to be a verbal affirmation. Now, that's where we come to the end of verse number 13. What happens after that? In verses 14 through 26, then they're called to be accountable. And there are 12 curses that are listed. And the priests are to pronounce that curse, and the people are to respond and say to it that they affirm that not just in the future, but if they do not abide by these stipulations of the law, these 12 stipulations, they are to be cursed. And they do so by making a positive statement. And God's people said... Amen. And that's exactly what they said. Amen. 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 Twelve times. These laws are not exhaustive. I think they're symbolic. Uh, it, and I'm not saying that they weren't to be kept. They were. But they're all symbolic of the whole law. And maybe they're symbolic of all the twelve tribes keeping all the laws. The specific punishments are not listed here. They have to do with idolatry, dishonoring parents, not moving the neighbor's boundary mark. Interestingly, not misleading a blind person on the road. Can you imagine doing that? <laughs> Not distorting the justice for orphans and widows and for aliens. Remember the unharvested edges? It is against three kinds of incest that are listed, against bestiality, against striking your neighbor secretly, <laughs> against taking a bribe to convict an innocent person. And then finally disobeying any of the law. Twelve of those are listed, and they say, amen, 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 twelve times. And then after that, in chapter 28, the consequences are given for disobedience, but also the blessings. When you read those four blessings, it's not specific blessings for doing specific things. It's four kinds of blessings that the children will, of Israel will receive if they're obedient. If they obey, and it's interesting, 
not some of the commandments, but all the commandments. The result of this, the result of this is what? Their witness amongst the nation will be enhanced. They will demonstrate to the nations around that they are a holy people set apart for God. The general blessings of prosperity that come upon Israel will be a witness to other nations. And likewise, if they disobey, they will be, what, cursed. Israel will be set apart and recognized for its obedience. In chapter 28, 9, and 10, it says this, The Lord will establish you, establish you. You see, they're already a holy people, but will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way. So all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they'll be afraid of you. <laughs> so the consequences of disobedience are given then in the rest of chapter 28. Before then, it describes in chapter 29 that they're on the plains of Moab. And you read through that sometime, and they all came true. And they are horrible, horrible punishments. They're destitute. They're scattered. They commit cannibalism. Uh, they are going to be slaves again someday. The plagues that will come upon them are worse than the plagues that descended upon Egypt if they're disobedient. So what's the rest of the story to wrap things up? Did Israel do this? Yes, they did. In uh, Joshua, the eighth chapter, after they fought the battle of Jericho, and after they were uh, disobedient uh, in battle, they were defeated at the battle of Ai, and then they had the, the victory at Ai later when they repented. And then after that, Joshua takes them further west, and they come then to the valley between Ebal and, and uh, Gerizim, and they do this. Shechem later became a cultic center for Israel. Not the only cultic center, but one of the key ones in Joshua 24. We find at the end of Joshua's book, you know, he tells them at the beginning, don't depart from the right and from the left. And then there's kind of a closed loop. It comes back to that at the end of Joshua 24, and he gathers them at a special place, and he says, you've got a choice to make. Where is that special place? It is at Shechem once again. It's not just ironic. It's symbolic. And he says, you can follow the gods of Egypt, or you can follow the gods of the Canaanites here, and then you know what he says. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the same kind of clear-cut choice is given to them. God later called Israel back to its central purpose in the covenant. The central purpose of the covenant was not legalism. It was not to make idols of the stones that were on Mount Ebal. And in fact, Israel broke everything in that covenant. And God recognized that he was a, a husband to them, but, he, but they broke that covenant. And we find Jeremiah then reminding them, Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, he is one. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you're to write these words where? on your heart. And that's the context for understanding later, I think, in the scarlet thread when we come to Jeremiah and we talk about the new covenant. The new covenant, what's new about the new covenant is there's going to be one who fulfills that covenant, Jesus Christ, in the true and perfect way. But God's intent from the very beginning was not for them to idolize stone. It was for them to obey God because why? They were his special possession 
They were his holy nation. They were his kingdom of priests. And because they loved him. And Jeremiah says this, and you know it well. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God. You see, there it is again. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then, of course, we finally close things with Jesus. Where does he then proclaim the first great I am statement? Where does he proclaim that he is the I am? He is identified with the I am, with God the Father. They are both the I am. He is the I am that met Moses on the mountain. He is the I am that delivered the children of Israel. The first I am statement that is made in the gospel of John is made to whom? To the Samaritan woman. Not to a Jew, but to a Samaritan woman in the valley beneath Mount Gerizim, next to Jacob's well, just a stone's throw away from Mount Ebal, in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. You see, he fulfills what God was calling Israel to do. You know, God's law, then and now, uh, we're no longer bound to keep the ceremonial law. I know that. I saw a sign the other day. Beverly pointed it out to me. We were driving through <laughs> San Antonio. There's a big billboard. <laughs> it said, no rules, just Jesus. How sound is that theologically? <laughs> not one jot, not one tittle of the law will pass until everything has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it by keeping it. Jesus fulfilled by teaching it perfectly. And Jesus fulfilled by accomplishing the ceremonial law and fulfilling it. We don't have to follow the ceremonial law. But, folks, we do follow God's covenant, book of the covenant. Not all the specific stipulations about sacrifices and all of that. But we do follow his law. Why? Because it's not just a set of rules to be legally right. You see, these laws weren't just about what you do. It described and defined the shape of the people of God. It defined and described them by their actions and obedience as being a what? Holy people. And it was a witness to all the nations of who God is and what God is like. My name is what? Holy. I am the I am. And they were witnesses of this. So the law was really about being a witness to the nations of who the holy God is. The law was a normative way of living that would reform the land. They were going into a pagan, lost, dark land. And the laws were abysmal. The way they treated each other was not only uncivil but ungodly. And they bring a new law to the land. And they put it up on the side of this mountain. And it was the best way of living not just for them, but for their neighbors. It was the right way of living related to God. It was the moral way of living, pure and ethically responsible. And in so doing, God was fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham at the very beginning when he was Abram. I'll make you a great nation, and through you I will do what? I will bless all people. And he did it first through the law, and then he did it through the lawgiver who came and fulfilled the law of Jesus Christ. Last couple of things. You see, the nature of God's covenant has not changed, not one bit. Some try to make a big distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, 
and there is progressive revelation here. But at the very beginning, it was not about works. You see, the covenant was a gift from God. The covenant Israel did not earn. God says to them, I didn't choose you because you were great and powerful. I chose you because I chose you, because I chose to love you. I did this because of grace. The covenant and the law were a product of God's grace. Obedience was never the primary condition for being holy. He made them a holy nation. Obedience was to demonstrate that God had made them holy, and they were fulfilling God's covenant promises. He did not give it because he was obligated to give it. He gave the covenant and the law because of his selfless love and his desire to accomplish something. And what was it? To be their God. You see, that's the thing in Genesis 17. He's promised the land. He's promised to be a great nation. But then when the covenant of circumcision comes, he completes that covenant. He says, I will be your God, and therefore you will be my people. You see, our obedience even today is motivated by what? By gratitude from God for giving us. Yes, the gift of redemption through Jesus Christ, but we should never, ever discount the importance of his giving us the law, which we still follow. Not out of legalism. Nothing's changed. In the new covenant, he says, if you keep my word, I will abide with you. It's based on relationship. Every generation, just like they stood there on the plains of Moab, and they made that commitment that day, just as then when they come then to Ebal and Gerizim, and they proclaim that they will obey, every generation then has the responsibility to do what? To reaffirm that they are a holy nation and they're a kingdom of priests. And he calls us to do that today. And he calls us to hear, O Israel, and to teach our children so that the next generation will do the same. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.